Support for WMFE comes from Orlando Science Center, offering four floors of wonder and discovery for families and curious minds of all ages. With exhibits, movies, and live shows that promote learning new skills, exploring fresh ideas, and cultivating a better understanding of the world around us. Tickets and more at osc.org. Inflatable space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. To sustain a long-term human presence on places like the Moon or Mars, engineers are looking at inflatable habitats. They're lightweight, easy to transport, and can be used to house astronauts and equipment. But in order to test these habitats, engineers are pushing them to the limits. We'll hear from Lockheed Martin, one company working on this technology, about how blowing these things up will help prepare them for deep space exploration. Then, NASA's InSight probe is nearing the end of its time on Mars. The robot tweeted what could be its last photo from the Red Planet this week. We'll look back on that mission and how it's giving scientists a better understanding of what's happening below the surface. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Lockheed Martin is developing an inflatable habitat for deep space exploration. It will provide storage and living space for Moon and Mars-bound astronauts. But before they can get to space, you gotta blow them up. That was the sound from a recent test by Lockheed Martin engineers inflating their habitat prototype well past its limits. Let's hear it again. That stress test and a jump scare for test engineers, as we just heard, is crucial for the future of inflatable habitats. Here to talk about what the team learned and what's ahead for space inflatables is Kirk Shireman. He's the vice president of lunar exploration campaigns at Lockheed Martin. Kirk, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to be here. So uh, happy to talk to you this morning. Yeah, and so uh, super exciting. You, you built this inflatable habitat, uh, this prototype, and then you blew it up. Um, why would you do that, Kirk? Well, first off, blowing things up is really cool, uh, especially when they're intended to blow up. Seriously, it is part of the certification process. You're building pressurized structures out of out of soft goods is um, you know is a new technology, and we want to make sure we have confidence not only at Lockheed Martin but at NASA. So part of the plan for certification of these types of structures is to design them for one pressure and then make sure it can handle multiples of those of that pressure. So in this particular case, the requirement was meet four times the maximum design pressure um, before it blows up, and uh, that's what we were able to achieve. So we, we were really excited about the test. Well, let's take a step back. These are inflatable habitats for, for space exploration. Walk me through the goals and the uses of, of these habitats and why inflatable is the way to go. Sure. Inflatable structures have a a, a great potential in space, and that's because volume is so critical. Today, to to get volume into space, what we have to do is keep expanding the size of the fairings of rockets. And and you have to have things inside of a fairing because it has to get outside of the atmosphere. If there was no atmosphere, this whole thing would be so much easier. Um, But you have to get bigger and bigger fairings, and that's hard. So what you can do with inflatable now is you can have a structure that's packaged inside the fairing of a rocket. But when it gets out into space, you inflate it and get a much larger volume. So for a given, I like to say for a given unit of mass that we launch into space, the amount of volume you can get is so much greater. When you're putting humans in space, 
when you're actually dealing with resources that you want to accumulate in a pressurized volume in space, having inflatable structures really is the answer. Mm -hmm. And why is this happening now, Kirk? I mean, you know, we've been sending things into space for decades. The International Space Station has been up there for 20 some years. Um, It's a solid material. Um, Why why is is inflatables this technology taking off now is it is it the material science has caught up what what's the what's the reason why it's it's so popular it's a great question i think there's probably two things um really the the, probably the the single largest is the demand right so now we're today actually it's it's uh it's uh the, the first piece of the international space station was launched in 98 the first humans arrived in november of 20 of 2000. So 22 years, we've had humans living and working in space. I think the demand to have a larger volume, to have more humans, to have more equipment up there in space is just now coming onto its own. So the drive for having that larger volume is happening now, even in low Earth orbit. And certainly as we go further and farther away, having that larger volume is going to even be more important. And then technologically, the ability to go materials, certainly the materials strengths, the ability to assemble these materials is, is, uh, is greater now. So I think there, it's just a conversion of, of those two things that's causing it to happen now. Um, there is an inflatable structure, by the way, on the International Space Station. It has been for, I'll probably get my uh, get the, my memory wrong here, but I want to say 2015, 2016 was the first piece, and it's still up there performing well. Um, it was manufactured by, uh, by the Bigelow Corporation, um, Bigelow Aerospace, and is still up there was the uh, the world's first inflatable structure on orbit. Um, uh, so I think I think it's just something that's coming to its own right now. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a cost benefit as well? I've, I've got to imagine it, it's it's must be. Is it cheaper to get these materials into space, or or is it you're just getting more volume in a smaller package? So that's where the cost is more effective. Yeah, I think. Well, today, right now, it already is cheaper, and I and uh, certainly as you build more of these. And you get the you know the the economy of scale, uh, it'll even be even be cheaper. So yes, definitely cheaper to build the the primary structure itself. Um, the performance is great. The the leak rates you can get with these kinds of structures, the durability for debris, by the way, uh, is great. You, you know, it certainly it can meet or exceed what you get from metallic structures. So the performance is good. The cost can be lower, and like I said, the volume can be higher. So. I do think once uh, once the industry, the uh, agencies, and the uh, and the people of the Earth get more comfortable with these kinds of structures, you're going to see more and more. This is the wave of the future. Mm-hmm. That was going to be my question: is you know how durable are these things? We we hear about micrometeorite strikes on the International Space Station. There's always the risk of space debris. When I think of something inflatable, I think of you know like a, a latex balloon, which is which is very um, delicate but you're saying these these are quite durable right you're not you're not putting a latex balloon in space right this is something something far more robust <laughs> yeah it so it is far more robust of course it's to think of it as a single layer is is not really it, it it's actually a whole series of layers uh, so it's much more rugged than a uh, than a latex balloon um, and before we fly it we actually test it you it turns out we, are, we have these guns on the uh, on the earth we can shoot particles um, at, at it in kilometers per second. I mean, you know, the, the, the speeds at which debris would be hitting it in space. And you can test out the durability, the toughness of, uh, of these structures. 
And, and I know for a fact, um, you can build these with every bit as durable as metallic structures. Uh, ultimately, you know, I'm not saying that you can't be hit by a piece of debris that would be catastrophic. Um, that's true with metallic structures, and it'll be true with these structures too. What you want to be able to do is make sure that all the pieces that you can't see with radar and predict when you're going to hit them, you're protected against. The ones that are bigger pieces, you're going to have to move out of the way and, and not hit those pieces. But but yeah, we, we can test them. We've definitely tested these kinds of things in the past, and there's no doubt that they're they're very durable because of these multi-layer structures that you uh, that you put up there. You blow things up, you shoot things. That sounds like a real fun job, Kirk. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah, the key is you don't want to blow things up when they're not supposed to blow up. But, but yeah. other than that, blowing things up is a lot of fun. And the videos, the, the, the things, the high speed video of something blowing up is just, it's just a, a gosh. It's like a symphony, you know, all the pieces going every which way. Uh, it's just, it's wonderful. It's uh, it's really exciting, a lot of fun. And you get some significant data from that, right? It's not, you're not just doing this because you want to do this, right? You're getting significant data back. Absolutely. We get, you know, obviously, the inflation. When we when we did our test the other day, you get the pressures and temperatures inside as you're inflating. You get stresses around the, uh, you're, you're measuring strain, really, around the, uh, around the structure itself, both in the metallic pieces, but in the soft goods as well. Um, you, you have high speed cameras so that when, when the failure occurs, you get to see exactly where it is. So you know, what was the weakest link of of your structure really, really important because it goes to, do you, can you really analytically predict what you're, what you're seeing? All that data validates your, your models. We have math models, you know, think of it as, you know, computer models of the whole structure. When we do these kinds of tests, it's great. We get to validate those electronic or those those digital models, which allow us to predict what's going to happen with larger structures or in different conditions. It really is a key key part of uh, building safe structures and uh, and being able to to put humans inside these kinds of structures. Mm-hmm. Kirk, let's look long term to that. Um, you know, you mentioned there's been for a few years now a prototype on the International Space Station in low Earth orbit. Um, what Lockheed Martin's working on, these are would be habitats for, for the moon and, and even beyond. What What is the plan for, for the habitats you're using, and how is the, the lunar environment different than the environment at, say, low Earth orbit? And is that kind of steering the way that you're developing these habitats? Uh, we're going to put these structures in different environments. The, the, the easiest one or the first one you come across, in low Earth orbit, we're protected from irradiation largely protected from a radiation environment. The Earth's magnetic field, um, the Van Allen belts protect a lot of the radiation, uh, you know, um, that you get inside, uh, that humans would would receive. As we go further out, radiation will be a bigger deal. It turns out metallic structures have a, a worse radiation environment because the, the galactic cardi- uh, cosmic rays actually hit the metallic the atoms in the metallic structure, and it causes secondary collisions, which which cause higher radiation environments. So the radiation environment for humans is a little bit better in uh, in soft goods structures. So we'll take them outside to higher higher altitudes outside the Van Allen belts. Think it, it, it the Gateway, for instance, is an example of where you would do it. We're going to put them on the lunar surface, and so the lunar surface is really interesting. The temperature extremes in space, it's just cold. Right, there's no pressure and it's cold. On the lunar surface, all of a sudden it goes really hot and really cold. It'll go from over 200 degrees C on in daylight to minus greater than minus 200 degrees C 
at night and it goes just like that. So not only the extremes of temperature, but the abruptness with which you'll see that. So we'll put them in there. Of course, the dust environment on the moon is, is really, really um, difficult. One is extreme, extreme amounts of dust and the particles are not dust in, on the moon. It's not like dust on the earth. Dust on the moon is like glass. It's very, very sharp because you haven't had the process of erosion from wind and water that we have here on the earth. Everything is like is, is just really, really sharp and abrasive. So those kinds of environments will be important. We'll have to go test these structures and make sure that we've protected them adequately to perform in those uh, all those environments. Uh, I'm sure we could solve those kinds of problems. Uh, I have I have zero doubt. And that's what we'll be working on in the coming years. Mm -hmm. And what are those next steps? I mean, are there more inflatable tests um, on the horizon? What's the next big milestone for, for this technology in Lockheed Martin? Sure. The next big milestone, of course, we have, we, we, we will probably do another subscale burst test. We're doing this, what we call a creep test. Think of creep as uh, if you, if you hang a weight on a piece of, uh, in our case, we'll hang a weight on a strap and see how, see how long that strap elongates over time. So, you know, it's, it's, in other words, just if you, as long as you hang it there for a while, it stays the same length, but over time it might start growing. Um, all those are really important for predicting, um, the performance of these structures over time, validating those electronic models I was talking about. We do uh, plan to do a full-scale burst test. Again, this is the process that NASA has, uh, has really set out for certifying these structures for human habitation. So we'll build a full-size module and blow it up here in the, in the not-too-distant future. That'll be a fun test to see as well. We've been speaking with Kirk Sharman. He's the Vice President of Lunar Exploration Campaigns at Lockheed Martin. Kirk, thanks for joining us. Great pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for having me today. Still to come, a look back on NASA's InSight probe as its time on Mars comes to an end. And speaking of the end, it's almost the end of 2022, which has been a very busy year for space exploration. What's been your fondest memory this year? And what are you most excited for for the future? Shoot me an email. We'll include your thoughts in our future show, looking back and looking forward. That's are we there yet at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. In a tweet, a probe on Mars announced its approaching demise. My power's really low, so this may be the last image I send, NASA's InSight mission tweeted Monday. Don't worry about me, though. My time here has been both productive and serene. The mission has been productive, peering deep below the Martian surface, performing longer than expected on the hostile red planet. Last year, scientists released a series of papers describing these findings. That's when we spoke with Jake Robbins, a journalist and host of the We Martians podcast about the mission and what secrets it was unlocking. Let's go ahead and revisit that conversation. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about InSight. There's some really cool findings from um, that were published uh, recently, but let's take a step back. Um, remind us, what is InSight and what is it searching for? Yeah, so InSight is a, a lander mission from NASA. It's landed on the surface of Mars. It went back there 
November 2018, I think, was the landing uh, time there. So it's been on the surface for a couple of years now. And the, the, the purpose of this mission is to try and understand the interior structure of Mars. So we have a lot of missions that look at the surface. There's orbiters that are taking pictures from orbit. You've got rovers that are driving around taking pictures, you know, cracking open rocks and looking inside. But those are all kind of surface missions. And we don't have a lot of data talking about the inside of the planet. How big is the crust? How big is the mantle? How big is the core? Um, you know, what's the density of these things? What's the composition of these things? All these different questions about what's inside this planet. And that's what Insight's designed to do. So it's a little bit different than the other missions. So it's landed on the surface. It has this very, very sensitive, high precision, fancy seismometer instrument that it is placed onto the surface in front of it. It's protecting it with this windshield and this temperature protector. And it's, you know, trying to make this seismometer as quiet and, and safe as it can be. And it's just been listening for two and a half years for Mars quakes. And it uses that data to try and understand what's happening. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting, different kind of mission that I, I'm very excited about, even though it doesn't always make the headlines the way some of the rovers do. So tell me a little bit about what it, it, it has heard um, and how scientists are interpreting that data. Yeah, so over the last two and a half years, it's it's turned out that Mars is maybe a little bit quieter than we expected it to be. Um, but there are Mars quakes that are happening, and a lot of them are coming from the same area on Mars. There's this place called Cerberus Fosse, and it's got these kind of long stretch marks on, on the crust that are kind of cracking apart. And we're getting a little bit of, uh, of Mars quakes that come from there. They're not big like earthquakes, like the, the headline earthquakes that you have on Earth that might hit, you know, magnitude 7, 8, 9. These are more in the 3, 4 range, so they're they're you'd probably feel them if you were standing right above them but you know on the other side of the planet where insights listening you wouldn't feel it at all so it's kind of quiet but it's been piecing together all these these uh these mars quakes and putting together this giant data set of seismicity and what you can do with that is when these these mars quakes happen and the waves propagate through the planet they're going to bounce off the different layers inside and you can kind of piece together the timing and where they bounce and how they reach the seismometer to create a model of the inside of the planet. And that's kind of what they've been doing uh, this whole time. And that makes this week so exciting because these these papers are basically the result of the main mission uh, or the main objective this mission was set out to do. So it's, it's a super exciting week from a science perspective. So InSight itself is stationary. Its microphone is stationary, right? And it's listening to things happening all across the planet. Is that right? That's, that's right, yeah. So just like on Earth, these Mars quakes, they kind of shake on the ground and then these waves of, of seismicity emanate out from there and they cover the whole planet and then they bounce off the other side and then go back again. They they hit the core, they hit the mantle, they bounce up and down. So you can kind of, the whole planet kind of rings every time this happens. It's very, very slight, but that's why you have to have this very fancy seismometer. And, and I, I, I cannot overstate how precise this instrument is. They can literally measure the width of a hydrogen atom. So if you had this seismometer sitting on the ground and you slid one hydrogen atom underneath it, it would notice that difference. That's how precise this is. You know, I think in some of the uh, tests that they were doing for the instrument before it flew, they had it in Colorado and they were listening to it to see what it could hear. And they could hear the waves crashing against the floor, uh, against the beach in, in California, for example. Like that's how, how uh, precise and sensitive this instrument is. That's absolutely cool. <laughs> so, so neat. So, so tell me a little bit about what what we're learning in, in these papers. I think there's, what, three papers that came out this week? That's right, yeah. They had one for uh, the crust, one for the mantle, and one for the core. And I think the, the biggest 
finding is probably that the core ended up being a lot larger than we expected it to be. So I think some of the estimates going in were a core radius of around 1500 to 1600 kilometers um, to, you know, make the, we know how much Mars weighs and how much the mass of it is, and we know how big it is. And so you can kind of get an idea, well, if it's going to be this density, it's probably about this big a core. But it ended up being about 1830 kilometers, if I have my numbers right. So 200 kilometers bigger of a radius than we expected. And that's kind of a, a surprising result. That has some implications about the density because the mass didn't change. And so if the core is bigger, we know it's got to have lighter stuff inside of it. And so now the all the, the geophysicists and the seismologists have to take this new result and pass it off to some other scientists, you know, the, the chemists and stuff and say, now you got to figure out what's what this is made out of because it's a lot bigger than we thought it would be. So it's kind of a fun way that science, you know, propagates to different uh, disciplines. Uh, we know that the crust itself has got these different layers in it. That's kind of a neat result. Um, on Earth, we don't actually see this kind of differentiation the same way. So we've got sort of three layers on the, the Mars crust that have different, um, you know, compositions and densities. That's pretty interesting. And then it has this this mantle area, which is very kind of different as well. They've got this, this thick part called the lithosphere that uh, on Earth is very turbulent, and it's got all these kind of uh, currents that move tectonic plates around on Earth. That's why we have mountains and earthquakes and, and all these kinds of things. Mars is one big plate, though. It doesn't have tectonic plates the way Earth is, so it's one giant you know, crust that goes all the way around, and it doesn't move, and this, this lithosphere sort of contributes to that. So it's a, it's a similar planet in many ways to Earth. It's got the same core mantle crust pattern, but there's a lot of really unique things about Mars that... Uh, uh, are going to now cascade into a whole bunch of different science questions in the future. Mm -hmm. This may be a, a silly question, but if there's no tectonic activity, what is it actually hearing when there's those Mars quakes? That's a great question. Yeah. So there's still there's still a, a Mars quakes because tectonics aren't the only thing that cause earthquakes or Mars quakes in this case. Um, what we see a lot here is we have um, tidal forces. So the sun and the moons are kind of pulling the planet, you know, squeezing it in and out and you can get different cracks and stuff that happen there. Uh, it's also cooling. And so as the planet gets colder, you know, all planets are sort of cooling in the long run. Um, that crust will have to kind of condense or shrink along with it. And that can cause different fractures and cracks along the way. So it's, it's, that's why the, the Mars quakes are smaller. We don't have the same sort of tectonic activity like you would in California or whatever. Um, but uh, we do still have activity that you can hear. Now, is this the first time scientists are actually getting a look at the seismic activity of, of this planet? It, uh, it's not exactly the very first time, but it's the, the most useful time. So there was a seismometer on the old Viking landers that landed uh, in the late 70s and early 80s that they were operating. Um, but they had some problems with that seismometer because they, they had it on the deck of the lander. So if you imagine the shape of a lander, you have this kind of spacecraft that's on legs. It's sitting on the surface. And the Viking one had the seismometer on top of the deck. And what they ended up hearing is as they were listening to the planet, they were also getting all this noise because the wind was shaking the spacecraft, the solar, uh, not solar panels, but the, the different antennas and stuff were catching the wind and that kind of thing. And so it was really difficult to extract out from the noise what the actual data was. And the instrument ended up being not as productive as they hoped. That's why the Insight went the different approach. They took it off the deck. They have this arm on the lander. They put it, you know, a couple meters as much as the arm can reach away from the lander and they shield it. Uh, and the data has been a lot more uh, valuable because of that. Uh, I read a tweet that described these findings as it may have a cool and brittle surface, but Mars has a very warm and gooey center. And I thought that was a very interesting way to describe the planet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what, what does that mean for, you know, understanding of planetary sciences? Like, how is this going to help, you know, the greater knowledge of 
planetary formation in our solar system and, and maybe how our, our own planet formed. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing is that it's another uh, data point in our study of planets. And so, you know, before InSight had its results, we knew what the inside of Earth looked like, and that was it. We All the other planets, we don't really have the same sort of, um, you know, look perspective inside of it. It would be like picking one person off the planet and looking at them and saying, this is what all people look like. It's not true. It gives you important information you know i know that you have a beard that tells me a little bit about you but that doesn't mean that every person has a beard and so now we have another data point to give us uh to help us kind of understand what's the same between these planets and what's different and we can extract that to all the planets and then the other thing that i would say is it allows us to ground truth a little bit so if we have say some spacecraft that are in orbit of mars and they are doing some sort of circumspect measurement of what the inside of the planet would be. Maybe they can see how it kind of wobbles on its axis or spins. We can observe that in another way. And now we can match that measurement to an actual reading of the inside and we know how they relate. And that means that we can go to another planet and measure the wobble there and probably have a good idea of how we can translate that measurement into an inside. So it's it's this kind of you know roundabout way that you can use this one piece of data to learn more about lots of different planets. And that's going to be really important, especially if we go look at things like exoplanets, which we will not have a seismometer on anytime soon. <laughs> so um, it's, it's a really important way to sort of flesh out our understanding of all planets rather than just one. Mm-hmm. And is this the last of the papers coming from this? I mean, is is Insight continuing to listen to the you know the the pulse of the planet? Can we expect more findings soon? I hope so. Yeah, um, the the instrument is still operating. Insight is is it's past its prime mission, so it was designed to kind of operate uh, in in a, a one Mars year. That was kind of the the objective they had with it, but uh, it's still operating past that, which is great. It's having some trouble with power. There's a lot of dust accumulating on the solar panel. So as it's aging, uh, that power level is kind of going down. And they've had to play with the instruments a little bit to see where they can save power here, save power there. They're trying some wacky stuff where they're clearing dust off the panels by dumping dirt on it with a little scoop, which is a lot of fun to watch uh, as the images come down. But it is still operating today, and they hope that they'd be able to go through the rest of this year and maybe into next year. And that's really important because it's adding to that data set. So the data is going to get more robust. You'll be able to do more with it, be more confident with it. But this is also a really important time because this is sort of the you're going into a quieter period on Mars where there's less wind um, and it's it's you can have less interference with the data. So um, you're going to have better quality data, I guess, in this this one time period. And then I've just, in, in any kind of seismological perspective, you're always kind of just waiting for the big one. They haven't had a big Mars quake uh, in the, the two years that they've been operating yet, but maybe that'll happen this year. And then, you know, we'll still be on to hear it, which is great. We've been speaking with Jake Robbins. He hosts and produces the podcast, We Martians. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. For more information at wemartians.com. Jake, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, my pleasure, Brendan. Thank you. That was Jake Robbins, a journalist and host of the We Martians podcast. That conversation first aired July 21st, 2021. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that with NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space news coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira, and script editing this week from Joe Burns. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.